Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Employee-owned Bob's Red Mill offers organic, gluten-free, and stone-ground products. With Bob's Red Mill, you're not just getting quality, you're getting healthy food that actually tastes amazing. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the great people we have a good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Amelia Saltzman, an award-winning author of several cookbooks, teacher, and an expert on farmer's markets. One of Amelia's passions is to help everyday cooks make the connection between small farmed foods and real-life meals. In today's episode, we'll learn what to cook as we arrive at the micro-season of March and April, how to shop at farmer's markets, and we'll hear Amelia's Julia moment. Keep listening to find out what exactly is a Julia moment. We'll be right back. In our first segment on Inside Julia's Kitchen, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. To Julia, understanding food, how to buy it, how to cook it, was paramount. Doing this in accordance with the seasons is how our ancestors lived, cooked, and ate for generations. And Julia was early in sounding the alarm that the idea of trying to outsmart nature so we would never have to do without might not be the best way to live. Sadly, while her voice on the subject was strong and clear more than 40 years ago, the forces of industry seemed to have won out, and year-round strawberries and tomatoes in the grocery store became the norm. It's only in the last decade or so that many have rediscovered seasonal eating. Some because it's healthier, better for the planet. But me, I'm pretty greedy. Julia might have also said that about herself, I think. So I think the best reason for seasonal eating is because it just plain tastes better. If you've ever compared what strawberries in season taste like to ones out of season, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And just because you can grow something in one climate and ship it halfway around the world doesn't mean that's a terrific idea. So just as Julia would have passionately advocated, I become very partial to seasonal eating, which includes eating what is locally in season wherever I am in the world. Try it. Your taste buds will thank you. This brings us full circle to today's guest, my good friend Amelia Saltzman, who is not only a terrific cook and food writer, but one of the most knowledgeable people I know about seasonal eating and shopping at farmer's markets. So I couldn't think of anyone better to guide us through eating and cooking as we arrive at what Amelia calls the micro-season of March and April. Welcome to the podcast, Amelia. Thank you, Todd. I'm delighted to be here with you, and uh, thank you for asking me. Of course. Well, I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. And if you can believe it, this is actually our first podcast where we're talking about food. We talk about food big picture all the time, but this is the first time we've had a food as an ingredients and what to cook in the kitchen focused episode. So I'm excited to explore that avenue with you for the first time. So let's dive in. Well, well, let's see if we can connect that to the big picture, too. We'll, we'll do it Okay, all. Good. good. Well, I'm sure we can. It, it all starts actually with what you eat, and then it goes to the big picture. So as Amelia probably knows from serving me food on many occasions, not the biggest root vegetable fan. <laughs> so I'm definitely over winter in my kitchen. So, so what is coming up 
that's in season that we should start looking for now? Well, it, the uh, the reason for my my focus on the micro season is over my years of um, shopping from local farmers and helping people learn how to cook and figure out what's in season. You know, Todd, people often say, oh, yes, I want to go to the farmer's market or I want to support my local CSA, Community uh, Supported Agriculture, which is by buying, getting a box of produce from a farmer. It's another, another way of accessing this food. Um, and they think, I want to do it. I get there, and I don't know what to buy. I don't know how to do it. And so as I've been teaching all these years and many years, um, I really am learning. I myself learn something new every time. I realize that saying spring, which is a big, you know, from March to June, doesn't really help us know what's really at its best now. So March and April, beginning of spring, and what we start to see wherever we are is the beginning of green shoots. This is the time of year where where new life comes, right? It's the time of rebirth and renewal. So we see green shoots. We see stinging nettles and green garlic, which means the young garlic plants emerging where you can eat the tops, the greens, and it's a wonderful seasonal treat. Um, we see leeks. We see herbs and so on. And and so that you're... Maybe you could take us a little into how, I, I don't know if you've coined or borrowed this phrase, but talking about micro seasons is a way to be a better helpful guide than than spring and fall, which are kind of nebulous because they start and stop in different places and different parts of the planet. Well, if you divide the 12-month year into two-month increments, you get January, February, March, April, right, May, June. July, August, and it's just this natural, it follows the natural cycles of the year. In other words, the lunar calendar, the growing seasons, and it just fits. A lot of things sink into, sink up. So you have um, the holidays fall in there. So here we are, March, April. So uh, Holidays, for instance, like Passover or Easter that are based on the lunar calendar, they're not always on the same date, mm. they're going to fall in that March-April little window, right? Mm. They're not going to be in May, and they're not going to be in February. And if you look at the rest of the year, it all that all syncs up as well. But also the foods, the symbolic foods that we tend to enjoy wherever we live are often part of that. So, um, you know, I think we're kind of mixing mixing things up here, but it all is, but that's the thing. Everything is connected. Why we eat, what we eat, when. So these six seasons of the year are much easier to understand, you know, what you should be looking for when you're trying to eat locally and seasonally. Because as we know, if, if spring is from... The time of Persian New Year, March 21st or so, the vernal equinox, to through mid June, the soul, you know, the summer solstice. March and June, no matter where you live in the northern hemisphere, are nothing like each other. Mm. So that two month block really tells you it anchors you. It may not may not be the same dates for me in Los Angeles as it is for my friends in Chicago or Boston or London, but it works. It works. So you're saying at least hemisphere to hemisphere, it kind of lines up, not necessarily exact dates, but for a broad season, it tends to synchronize to, to a large right, extent. It's a, it's, a, it's a nice window. This is nature we're dealing with, and sometimes nature or climate seems to be <laughs> Nature isn't always so punctual or consistent. Days, but it's, it really is a window for knowing, because you, when you go, when you look at a display of food at a farmer's market, 
you see the farmer's early picks of something, which are not necessarily going to be their most full-flavored self, and you want to maybe have a little patience. Um, Or you might see late season, which might be either, "Eh, it's a little tired, or it's like so fully flavored, it has its own spectacular way of being. Um, So, like, for instance, citrus. You know, blood oranges here in California and elsewhere, and that doesn't mean things that aren't being shipped, they start to show up in November, December. Well, that's so early, they don't, they're not really full of flavor. They need to hang on the tree longer. There's more time spent, flavors developed. And so January, February, you see it in one way. March and April, they're very full-flavored, really rich yeah, I've really been enjoying some amazing blood oranges these years. I think where we are, they, they're coming from Italy, which is not exactly. too, too far. But. And so, you know, when we, we hear, you know, like there are many areas of the world that are Mediterranean climate, and you've just hit on a couple of them, you know, Spain, Italy, parts of France, and California, certainly. So they have a lot in common. Um, so, so let's go back to what you were talking about about what what's going to start showing up in in as seasonal produce in, in the March April micro season. And you were talking about green shoots and rebirth, and I know you mentioned leeks and herbs. Um, obviously, it might be a little hard to have a balanced diet of leeks and herbs, and that's it. So, how do, how do we how do you eat seasonally, sort of making use of 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 what's starting to show up? I think I think. Um of course, well, you you, mad, you you pair seasonal foods, you showcase them in ways um, that make that make life feel very special. So obviously, it's not just green shoots and, and lettuces, but it's also artichokes and um, and we were talking a bit late season, for instance, uh, all the brassicas are just wonderful cauliflower and. Um, broccoli, cabbages, all of these are just so sweet because of the cold weather we've all had. So you just, you think about a meal, let's say, okay, so here's an example. Fennel is beautiful right now. And fennel, its licorice quality pairs so well with fish, right? They're Mm. a known pairing. So one of my favorite recipes, and it's actually a dish in the seasonal Jewish kitchen, um, is to make a one-pan dish of um, seared uh, of fish like a sea bass or salmon, something with a nice crispy skin, and um, sitting atop um, a dish of, of potatoes, fennel, um, onions, and with with cream, like a you know cream fish fennel, right? Cream potatoes mm-hmm. done all in one pan, in the oven, and you are it's rich, it's luscious, and it evokes a country French meal. But it also the the genesis for that recipe for me was from an old community cookbook my mom had, um, where it you know I remember her making. Um, some kind of addition. For all I know, it used cream of, cream of mushroom soup in it at that time. <laughs> I don't know. But it was, it, it just had this idea that was worth taking and elevating into something that was at once seasonal, exciting, and easy to prepare. Because that's something that's really key. The better those ingredients are, the more inspiring. The simpler, with a few simple cooking techniques, the easier it is to get a nice meal on the table. That sounds good. Now, now fennel is actually pretty easy once you get over the fact that it kind of comes in this um, torturous contraption that you have to to chop down to to bite sized portions, right? Well, yeah, you know, and that's and that's something that's important to me. I've I've been learning all along about ingredients. So I didn't grow up eating fennel. My, my parents are from Israel. It wasn't something they knew before they came to the United States. 
So I came to it as an adult, and probably one of the, the most interesting things I learned in my culinary research is nothing I love more than delving into the backstory of an, of, of an ingredient. Um, it always takes me on such an interesting trip. But, you know, fennel, for instance, was in Italy. We associate fennel quite commonly with, with Italian cooking and Italian flavors, but it actually first was um, considered a Jewish food for Italians. That's what it was. It did not break out of the ghetto uh, until really until the 19th century, and um, as, as did eggplant. These were not foods that the entire culture were really relishing. And, um, you know, there's several ingredients like this that are, you know, considered quintessential ingredients. So, yes, so learning the backstory and then just knowing simple techniques of just cutting that, you know, bulb of fennel in half and maybe breaking off the thick outer leaves and um, leaving some of the stock um, attached to be able to use as a safety handle almost if you want to shave fennel and use it raw on a salad, for instance. So little home cook tricks that are designed to make your life easier and also make you want to use that food. It's not like you look at that bulb of fennel and say, this is too hard to do, never mind. Well, and I think that that actually brings up a great point because Amelia has a terrific book that's now a bestseller called the Santa Monica Farmer's Market Cookbook. And I think one of the most important things to say is it's an incredibly versatile and useful book with not just terrific, healthy, delicious recipes, but a huge amount of guidance on how to cook with a wide range of fruits and vegetables. Even if you live nowhere near Santa Monica, it doesn't matter. And I think tips like you just gave on fennel are are in the book, right? Absolutely. You know, I wrote the Santa Monica Farmer's Market Cookbook in, in order to do or to accomplish three things. I really wanted to tell the story of what it's like to grow food for small family farmers to grow food. Um, I wanted to tell the story of what it's like to shop directly from the producers of your food and, and how diverse that is. And then I wanted to help people know how to cook. I wanted to share what I had discovered along the way, and I think the best way to do that is to tell a really vivid, specific story. So I used my local farmer's market um, and all the people I met to tell those stories. So I might know Farmer Bill, but you might know Farmer Sue, but it gives you a window into what each of them might be thinking and how they live. And the um uh you know i think that it's it is i i am amazingly surprised at how this book caught fire i mean it's been going for years now um because and I, and i feel very gratified that i succeeded in my goal which is to use the specific to help with the universal so it's like we want to learn how to to cook French food. We don't have to live in Provence to aspire to learn from those things. So, um, but we really are transported by a vivid story and want to be transported when we go into our kitchen. So that was that was that's how that worked. But it's all about that. How to use it. How you know? I learn so much from every farmer I meet, or from, or from fellow shoppers, and I wanted to share that. Well, I think the book has succeeded in that and more because it's you know more than the sum of its recipes. Because you, as a natural teacher, have provided so much guidance in how to both pick and prepare, and even how it's grouped and organized. It, it's, in my view, very indispensable. So. 
My pleasure, of course. I highly recommend it. And you, if you look for it again, it's um, it's called the Santa Monica's Farmers Market Cookbook. And we'll give Millie's website where you can check out where to buy it. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we when we come back, we're going to talk to Millie a bit more about her guidance and expertise on shopping at a farmer's market in general. We'll be right back. My latest snack rediscovery is popcorn. Few things smell as enticing as freshly popped homemade popcorn. Now, I hadn't realized you can make microwave popcorn using just regular popcorn and a paper bag. I always thought they did something to the popcorn or added some magic ingredient that made microwave popcorn work. Boy, do I feel stupid. What you really need to make delicious popcorn at home is good corn. A couple of tips. Do a few practice runs to get the ideal time and power settings for your microwave. Make sure to fold the paper bag shut firmly. What you end up with is delicious popcorn, and especially if you're disciplined in the toppings department, pretty healthy snack. This is made all the more reassuring by using quality popcorn from Bob's Red Mill. All that's in the bag is, what do you know, whole grain yellow corn. A reminder that when you're looking for flavor, healthy food, and quality all together, you can count on Bob's Red Mill. Visit bobsredmill.com today and use the discount code Julia's Kitchen in all caps for valuable savings on Bob's Red Mill products, including popcorn. So I'm really hoping that our listeners have discovered the pleasure of shopping at a local farmer's market near them. And I'm really hoping that you actually have a farmer's market near you. So certainly in Santa Monica, California, where Amelia is based, and I have also lived, they have some of the best farmer's markets in the country. So we're definitely coming from a, a spoiled position. But as Millie was talking about, you know, using the Santa Monica's farmer's market system, which is one of um, the possibly better or best ones in the country as a model, I think it's still very representative of how to learn to shop them and how to interact with the farmers. So Millie, I know you're super big advocate for farmers markets. So maybe we should start with the first, the why, like why is it worth prioritizing shopping? And even if you have to tracking down where your local farmers market is. Well, um, as I mentioned Boy, there is a lot of pleasure associated with all of this and also a lot of good. So um, there are, so first of all, when we can eat, you know, locally, seasonably, seasonally and sustainably as often as possible, we accomplish several things. One is that we are supporting the local community. We're supporting our local farmers who are growing to, in such a way to, uh, for them to grow the soil. So we are taking care of the planet at the same time, the environment. So we are, and we are assuring that we have green space, not just buildings. Food has to be grown somewhere, you know. And uh, let me just back up and say, yes, being at a farmer's market is, to me, the best because it's like a village square. You meet your neighbors and you get to know your farmers. Everybody is accountable and 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 in a place to have an exchange of ideas. Farmers learning from farmers, cooks learning from each other, from from the people who grow and eat the food. The farmers are eating what they're selling. So there's a lot of that. You know, I think, could you talk about that the fact about talking to the vendors? Because I always think it's, it's a little bit awkward sometimes. And I think part of it is people who choose to farm are not usually like customer relations experts, and that's not their natural disposition. But I think that, as you were saying, they're really a place of community. And that exchange of ideas and development of a relationship, I think, may be underappreciated by people, particularly if they're, they're new to that. What's your yes, view of that? I think that's right. I think... 
the the Santa Monica market, uh, the downtown Wednesday market, is one of the oldest and largest in the country, one of the best. It's a growers-only market, which means you don't find a lot of doodads and prepared foods. But that market is 35 years old now, and Mm. that means that, you know, farmers have come and gone and so on, but through strong leadership um, and a real care for this being all about the farmer, what you have is you have this community of learning and exchange, and it is like this wonderful bubble. If, if some farmers are naturally not big talkers, this is their place, and they come. It's not easy for a grower to leave the farm and leave those rows of trees or or vegetable crops, and drive their produce to, you know, get up at 2 in the morning and drive their produce and be ready to sell at 8 in the morning. But it's worth it. They get as much from it as we do. And in this day and age, that those feelings of relevance and worthwhile effort and inspiration um, I, every time I'm at a market, I'm so inspired by the hard work. So, but I agree with you, Todd. You mentioned something very key, which is people are shy about knowing what to say and what to ask when they go to a farmer's market, and it takes a little time to learn something new, but it's worthwhile. So uh, farmers are busy, or their employees are busy. You have to learn a certain degree of patience, but the more you're there, and they come to recognize you, and the more, can I ask you a question? What, you know, what is, you know, what is this? How, how do I use this? Or what do you, you know, like, is this, is this the best variety on your table today for me to take? Should I? So, and a farmer who loves, they are nothing if not passionate about what they do, will be thrilled to answer questions that have been asked in that, in that curious, desirous of learning and knowing way. And you begin to build relationships. And that, that, like, when do we get that? We don't get that at a supermarket. That's kind of an isolated action. We don't really learn. We just take and pay. So... Yeah, I think that that's really key. And and I think it is tough because I've always found, oh, they seem really busy. I'm interrupting or bothering them asking a question. But I think I think you're saying in your experience, nine times out of 10 or even more, they are happy to stop and answer a question if it's presented in a respectful and curious way. I think so. You know, think about, you know, how you would like to be approached and then go about it that way. And, um, and, and let that be your guide. You know, farmers, the farmers who sell directly to the customer are in the business of education. And they, when they come there, they are also in the business, of course, of selling. And a farmer's greatest selling tool is a sample. And that, of course, leads us to the quality of what they're growing and how, how somebody can know how to shop. So not all farmers' markets are created equal. Um, so for the customer, the best advice I have is to use all your senses. Look at what you see. Does it look appetizing? Do, do the vegetables that you couldn't taste, do they still look like you want to just take those home and cook them? You see those potatoes. They don't look withered. They, they look in a way... Juicy, the fennel bulbs, they look, they look juicy and perky and luscious, not dry and old and long-stored. Um, so you're, you're looking, does it look appetizing? Does it, how does it sound if you do have a taste of something? Is it, does it snap? Does it crunch? And listen to what other people are saying, the farmer the people around you, let's say you're curious about something and your, your shopper neighbor has picked that up and, you know, clearly knowing what it's all about. And so you ask, so what, how, what do you do with that? And that's how, that's how we learn to cook. 
That's how we so, learn to cook. And that's how we learn to create recipes. Well, I, I think that's really great advice, especially the using all your five sentences, because some of it's a bit nuanced. It's almost even hard to articulate, you know, and I think unfortunately advice sometimes is, well, how do I know when the fennel is good? Well, you look at it, you can tell it's good. Um, that's easier for some people than others, and it comes with experience, but it it does sort of speak to you, right? Well, and you have to think, look at all the other things we do where we are willing to spend a lot of time to gain experience and knowledge. Right? We don't, we don't just go, we learn to drive before we take the driving test. We don't assume, right? <laughs> um, but most people. Mostly, right. Or we shop, we do our due diligence before we buy the car. So we do have to take a little of the responsibility of trying to learn and to see, but that's, that, that, uh, that's joyful. And no, we can't learn everything at once. But when, if we do start getting to know, we start discovering over and over again how great. And I want to say, you know, we keep focusing on fruits and vegetables at this point, but a good farmer's market should be, have great diversity of product because family farming involves eggs and chickens and meat and in a way can involve fish because local fishermen bringing catch is part of that food system. And so it's always about getting something that is likely better cared for, well-caught or well-harvested because to farm like this in a way that where you are selling directly to the client or choosing to grow items for flavor rather than how long they can be stored or shipped. That flavor is the first and quality are the first two measures of what you do. That's, that's you know, something you, you, that you're talking about, passion and skill. So all of, the, all of our food, wherever possible, we should seek that out um, so that we are healthier. I mean, you know, eggs that from chickens that roam around under the rose bushes and peck at leftover, you know, cantaloupes from the overly ripe cantaloupes from the field, um, there and, and grubs and whatever they have, those eggs are more flavorful, beautiful color, and uh, more nutritious. And it's an egg. That, no, that's a great. Yeah, that, that that's a very romantic uh, chicken that that should taste good because a happy chicken will make a, a great tasting egg. I want to ask you about one of my bugaboos because I've gotten very frustrated um, at conversations that I've overheard in farmers markets when someone who maybe hasn't done some of the homework or asked the the sensitive or respectful questions that you're recommending is kind of brusquely approaching a vendor saying, is this organic? Is this organic? Oh, it's not. Never mind. And I think people need, uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of sellers of all different sizes jumped on this branding shortcut of organic is good, everything else is bad. When you need more information than I would, could you speak to, should you buy something at a farmer's market if the farmer says, no, I'm sorry, it's not organic? Well, Oh, boy, did you touch on a sore point. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, talk about a request. Are you organic? And then not wait for anything more after, well, no. So you're, I agree. Being certified organic is one measure of uh, farming practices. It is, many farmers would say, it is not the highest standard or highest bar of quality. Uh, and if you were shopping in a huge warehouse or market, it might be the only marker that you have um, to gauge safe food. But it's more important, you know, like there are many sustainable practices that are far beyond the certification of organic um, and that 
don't necessarily, and farmers who are not necessarily um, certified. So there are going to be all kinds of reasons. They're in the process. They can't afford it. It's very costly, um, and it's very time-consuming. There's a lot of paperwork. And... Um, or they just might be, you know, like, this, you know, the, the certification is just, it's such a low bar. I'm not going to do that. You know, farmers, as you say, they may not be the greatest public relations people, and they also may be rather cantankerous. Uh, but the thing is that there are so many ways of farming, and the first clue, like flavor and the sensory experience, is always your first as to how something was raised. You cannot raise delicious, fabulous food without farming well. So, for instance, we talk about terroir when we talk about wine. Well, what is wine? Wine is, wine is grapes. What is grapes? Grapes is a fruit, and it's all about how it was grown and all the characteristics of the soil that give to the food. So a farmer who farms paying attention to the soil, protecting the soil so that we have it, um, nourishing it by planting uh, legumes, uh, you know, uh, peas and beans and so on, that can then be turned when when they're done and dry, turned into the soil to nourish the soil, to feed the soil, so that the soil can then feed the crops. These are techniques that don't need to come out of a, a chemistry bag. And so that's, uh, that's probably more than you need to know. But No, I think that's helpful. And I was going to say that I think one of the easier monikers that I use, particularly at a farmer's market, where they're already having to pass certain bars to be there in terms of how they farm and what they grow, is how is it local? And does it make sense? Is it the kind of produce you would expect for the the natural environment relative to that season. California can kind of stretch certain things because of the the climate. But would you, you know, I'm just, I'm suggesting that as sort of a shortcut, particularly if you don't have time to engage in the entire conversation about how they grow their crops or lie them fallow. But what I see now is that that farmers are often posting sign to explain what their practices are. And some good farmers markets, the management has asked farmers to fill out a card about their management practices, you know, certified organic, biodynamic. If it's conventional, what do they do? What do they use? But the thing is, flavor, the, the pleasure principle is the key. If it really looks well-grown and appetizing, and it's a flavor that is an item that is bursting with flavor, and the person behind the table is proud of it. You know, you can tell the difference. You know, you have to try. That's the other thing. There's a sixth sense involved, which is your common sense. What are, you know, what do you know? You know when it looks like, like nothing you'd want. You know if there's an indifferent employee or somebody who just really doesn't know anything about it. Shop at a different stand. Vote with your dollars. Well, I think that's that's a great guideline and very Julia Child um, uh, oh, yeah. akin, right? To use the pleasure principle at the farmers market because that that that's going to be your best guide. I don't want to run out of time before we just have a, hear a brief amount from you about your your latest book, the Seasonal Jewish Kitchen, which I was just um, looking at again to remember what my favorite parts are, and it really is such a beautiful book. And I think I saw something that you wrote about it being kind of relative to another type of regional cooking, and certainly it has a very Middle Eastern Mediterranean flair, which is both based on your heritage and history in and of itself. So I just wanted to to touch on you saying kind of what you think the highlights are and why this book is for people, maybe even people who aren't Jewish. Well, for sure it's for everybody because certainly in many parts of the world and certainly in any melting pot place like the United States or like Great Britain or like Israel, um, where you have many cultures coming together, um, 
there's a great interest in food and a great diversity. And whether, no matter what your faith is, you tend to eat the foods that are available in your region. And so here in the United States, we often think, oh, Jewish food, uh, deli, pastrami, um, heavy, um, noodle kugel, matzo ball soup, end of story. But, of course, that's so little of the story. So I, um, I wanted to open up so many different reconnections and thinking about it. So it was the next logical step to all this conversation about seasonal local food because it was where were the farmers learning from? What are all these agricultural lessons? What are these natural cycles of the year? Because that's how the ancients lived, worked, and created their religions and their cultures. It's all tied together. We've just forgotten and as I cooked and researched and thought about my own family history, it, you know, the, the, running, the running line all the time was, this is Jewish food? Who knew? So I wanted to, to open up that global picture because not only is our ingredients, crops, local and seasonal, but food, you know, the cooked food and the techniques are regional as well. They are also local. So for time immemorial, people were always cooking using the same techniques, um, working with the same foods. So an example would be if we're talking about meat, um, curing a, prosci- a leg of ham to, be, become a, to become prosciutto versus curing a goose leg to become goose pastrami or, you know, something like that. So it's say, the same techniques, rendering fat. If you live, you know, you either are rendering pork or fat or, or beef tallow or duck fat. And you are then maybe putting cultural meaning. But you don't have to be Jewish to know the pleasure of duck fat, right, or chicken fat. It just has a different name. So, so reconnecting all of that and thinking about how it has many, how those things have many meanings, and um, and just for well, I think the other Millie, the other thing to mention about the book that um, I'm just double checking, yeah, that you you've done quite early because the the book is, came out in what 2015. Yeah. Is that it's organized by these micro seasons. So, so as another extension of how this book is really helpful and useful for everyone, particularly if you like any of those either Eastern European cooking traditions that Delhi is very associated with, or Middle Eastern food, which Adelenghi has sort of modernized or contemporized to some degree. It's a great merger, and then it's designed, and or your your dishes are organized. By micro season, so rather than having a, a chapter on chicken, you have chicken recipes interspersed by micro season, so you kind of know how to make your chicken with what's most in season, right? Exactly, and and Otolenghi is also a good good uh, connection here. So, in his book, you know, in his books in Jerusalem, for instance, you don't have to be from Jerusalem. You don't have to be uh, Jewish or Israeli or Palestinian to want to cook that food. Clearly not. It's good food is good. Good is good. As as our culinary great teachers have always taught us. Good is good. And so we're interested. So um and I wanna and in this book I did I wanted to connect that. I wanted to connect things globally and um to open it up. Well, I'm glad you did. It's well worth checking out and even going farther and cooking from. So we've learned a lot about a key, easy-to-remember thing about picking seasonal food and eating well seasonally is to use the pleasure principle. If it tastes really good, it's probably in season and ready to eat. And it's probably well-grown as well. We're going to take a short break. Exactly. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, Amelia is going to reveal her personal Julia moment. We'll be right back.
Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we segue into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. The Julia moments when we ask guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, how she inspired them in their career. Amelia, tell us what your Julia moment is. Oh, well, I have two defining moments um, that kind of bracket the time when I was just starting out. I was then a director of a cooking school, and then the the other side of it is, is it was you know, at the end of Julia's career, so it was quite, quite meaningful for for me. When I and it was back in 1982, and she, Julia, was the master chef at uh, a three day cooking extravaganza. And because I worked at this cooking school, I was had the honor of being the culinary uh, scullery assistant. <laughs> so, so which after, means you did the washing up, right? Well, yes. Yes, I mean, that was it. And, and so um, after she'd finished one cooking demo, you know, three-hour class, and people were, you know, lining up very, you know, with their books and in front for her to sign. And, and by the way, this was at a time when Julia was preaching about this new organization she was helping to create, the IACP. So, and... and um, so I'm, I'm, you know, busting the everything and working, and then she calls on me, you, you know, go get that, that, that the meat that we have in the refrigerator for my lunch after my class. We'd made some fabulous lobster American, you know, during the class, but she wanted hamburgers, which, as you know, was a Julia favorite. So I go run there, and she tells me, okay, grind it. Now, I hadn't used the meat grinder, and there I am in public in front of Julia. So I proceeded to do all of these things, listen to her, talking with the public, and then she focuses on me, and she is teaching me. So what do you think? Shall we put, you can imagine, let's, how should we season it? Should we put some time? Time always goes well with, with beef, I think. And I'm thinking, I just learned something. So together we cooked, and of course we cooked the burgers in butter, it was a perfect Julia meal, but I learned a lot about her firm but gentle teaching and kindness to this young person just starting out. Um, and then, 20-something years later, I was the chair of the Endangered Treasures Project, um, and which was a project near and dear to Julia's heart of saving and protecting our old cookbooks, which is our social history of cooking. Nothing was more important to her. And that was Julia. She came to speak, and it was her last public appearance. And that, that having her make that effort to come, it was just the year before she passed away, to come and speak, um, and to talk from the heart, even though she didn't stand. It was such an honor, and it was such a life lesson. And then the next day, and then she went right back up to Montecito, and the next day um, I ran up with Barbara Haber, the former curator of the Schlesinger Library, um, and a good friend of Julia's who was in Los Angeles for the event. We dashed up to Montecito with... Um, fabulous charcuterie and so on for lunch, and I got to watch those two friends gossip about all the Cambridge days. 
So those are my favorite Julia memories. Well, what a wonderful way to close out the show of say of Julia's influence and and impressions on your life and the 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 torch that you continue to carry coming full circle from from early days to more recent days. That's just wonderful. Well, thanks for being on the podcast, Amelia. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I we I know we could just keep talking. It was great, great catching up with you, Todd. Always a pleasure. Thanks, and thanks everyone for listening. Let us know what you think about today's show. You can reach us via email or even send us a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. Please also like us on Facebook. You can search at Julia Child. You can follow the foundation on Twitter. The handle's at JuliaChildJCF, and my handle's at tshulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. We're also on Instagram. Search Julia Child Foundation, all one word. If you'd like to learn more about Millie, or Amelia, as she's known professionally, her award-winning cookbooks, and all that she does, go to ameliasaltzman.com. It's A-M-E-L-I-A, and Saltzman is S-A-L-T-S-M-A-N. And you can even subscribe to her newsletter for great tips on food, or better yet, you can sign up for one of her terrific tours of the Santa Monica Farmer's Market. There's one on April 11th. You can follow her on social media. Just search at Amelia Saltzman on Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram. Thanks to WGBH for the Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef. And many thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, David Tadashor. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. If you like what you've been hearing, please subscribe. If you like the podcast, it'd be really great if you gave us a review. That really helps new listeners discover the show. And we look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.